0: And let's go ahead and stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to read the whole thing. The Apostle Paul wrote this to the church at Corinth. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. But only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ." Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Well, let's pray and get to work. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for a little bit of rain this morning. God, we pray that you would give us more. We pray for rain and snow this winter. Um, We pray... That uh, more than that, though, that you would not only replenish the land, but replenish our hearts, that you would revive our hearts. Uh, God, we pray this Christmas that once again you would help us to um, appreciate traditions, to uh, remember the truth of your word. Um, Lord, that Jesus would triumph over Santa. Lord, that in our hearts we would not crave material things more than we crave you. Lord, this Christmas draws closer to Yourself. And Lord, this morning we pray that You would speak to us through Your Word, which You not only gave to the Corinthian church, but You gave to us here in Garden Grove. Lord, we pray that as Your Word goes forth from this stage and from thousands of others um, around us, Lord, we pray that many would be saved, encouraged, convicted. And God, we pray that You would do a mighty work among Your people this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. All right, you may be seated. We've got a lot of work to do. So if you'll get those notes out and follow along, we're going to plow through this entire chapter. And I look forward to seeing uh, all that we can get to because there are riches in this chapter. Um, so I would encourage you to go after it uh, this day at lunch. Talk about the sermon at lunch. Talk about what you learn in the education hour. Ask questions. Dig deeper. Send questions helpfully constructive criticism via email. Uh, let, let's dive into what God has for us here. If the sermon starts here and ends here, then we, we don't do much good. What we want is we want for uh, the word to echo through our lives this week. So as we move into, into chapter 3 in 1 Corinthians, Paul continues to talk about the wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of God, the foolishness of the world and the foolishness of God. And he continues to talk to the Corinthians in such a way that he might encourage them to mature and to grow. That's the the emphasis here is on the growth of these believers. And so as Paul continues to move through his arguments in the letter, we're going to see him get more and more confrontational with the church at Corinth. Um, But within all that, I want us to always notice the language that Paul uses. So look there in verse 1. Paul says, but I, next word is? Brothers. brothers. Okay? Brothers. Now if you have an ESV, you've got a little note right there which takes you to the bottom of the page and shows you that this is not just talking to the males in the church, but this is um, like saying in Spanish, when we go on mission trips, we ask if there are any ninos in the house. We're not asking if there are just boys, we're asking if there are Children, okay, right? So, in the same way here, it's it's brothers, okay, meaning brothers and sisters, meaning siblings. So, Paul says to his brothers, his brethren, his siblings in God, that this is how he sees them. This is how he wants to approach his rebuke. So, I would approach rebuking my brother in a different way than I would a guy on the side of the road that I don't know because I have relationship with him and so Paul says all that he's going to say here in the context of relationship with these people if you remember um, Pastor Ronald introducing the book uh, Paul spent about 18 months in Corinth uh, a significant amount of time uh, teaching these brothers and sisters establishing the church and I want you to remember that as we see the criticisms that Paul has for them and point number one is is Paul wants to tell the Corinthian Christians to grow up. Point number one is grow up. Mature Christians work for unity and peace by turning away from old ways of living. Mature Christians work for unity and peace by turning away from old ways of living. Look at verse 1 again. Paul said that he could not address these brothers as spiritual people. Pastor Ron, uh, last week in chapter 2, talked about um, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, even uh, included in the worship folder, what we believe uh, here at Village Bible Church about the Holy Spirit, what's in our statement of faith, and so uh, in this, he's not just saying that some people uh, are spiritual in essence and some aren't. He's saying that some uh, are supposed to be led by the Spirit, Spirit-filled, Spirit-led people, and Paul says I couldn't address you like that. What, what did he have to address them as? As people of the flesh. People of the flesh. Note that um, phrase, because that's going to become important as we get into the next few verses. That word in Greek um, is one letter different than the word in verse 3. See verse 3? For you are still of the flesh. So in verse 1 and verse 3, we have the same phrase, of the flesh. But in Greek, there's this subtle difference that we really can't get out in English very well. Um, And it's one letter difference, which makes a big difference. Because what he is saying here is that the Corinthians are people of the flesh. And he helps explain that as infants in Christ. So he's saying, you're babies. Or you were babies when I was there in Corinth. You never heard of Jesus, never heard the gospel. And so, baby Christians, you were babies, people of the flesh. It means that they were weak or baby Christians. They were made of flesh. Um, they were fleshy. Um, there's all these different ways to try to get what's going on in the languages here. But it's not necessarily their fault that they were babies. We, don't, we have a lot of babies in here. We don't blame the babies. Come on, kids, get up and walk. Let's go. Make your breakfast. Come on. We, we don't expect that. We expect them to be babies. When a 23-year-old, however, is in the same situation, we, we're, come on. Make your breakfast. Come on, walk across the room. That's a totally different thing because we have expectations on uh, an older child, an adult, than we do on a baby. So I think what's going on here in verse 1 is Paul is saying, it was okay that you were babies when I was there. But watch verse 2. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Again, not a big deal. Okay, Chris and Amanda are not going to go home today. Jen and Eric are not going to go home. Sarah and Jen, people with babies are not going to go home and say, all right, toothless one, here comes some steak. That, that's not what happens. We don't, we don't do that. Um, we, we steadily progress. And so Paul said, hey, when I was there, all you can handle was milk, which is not a wrong. We, we, we need to give babies milk. That's how God designed them. And so infant Christians, baby Christians needed milk. They needed um, the basics. But they were not ready. But then Paul begins to turn and kind of indict them for a lack of maturity by saying, And even now you are not ready. Okay, even now you are not ready. So somewhere between three and five years later, when Paul's writing this letter to them, they haven't progressed. So we have stunted growth. We have a lack of growth. We have static Instead of dynamic. And so, what Paul is expecting them to have done is to have grown up so they can handle more adult food or solid food. That leads into verse 3, where Paul says, You're not ready, for you are still of the flesh. And this is where the word in Greek is one letter difference. And this time it means rather than fleshy or, or the physical substance, it means more like fleshly, okay? It has more of an ethical meaning. They're characterized. By the flesh. They're they're characterized by fleshly uh, longings, desires, way of life. So it was okay that they were fleshy when they were babies. But now that they're grown, they ought to have moved on and progressed. So what Paul is looking for is looking for spirit-filled Christians. Spiritual people, as verse 1 says. And yet the Corinthians are not that Way. And the problem with the Corinthians is not a problem that we are distant from. Look at verse 3. While there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Only in a human way. Why? Because there was jealousy and strife. The reason that they couldn't eat solid food is because there was jealousy and strife among them. It was stunting their growth. It was keeping them from growth. And so the question there in your notes that we have this morning is kind of taking the metaphor that Paul uses, what's my diet? I mean, that'd be a question you could ask yourself this morning. What's my diet? And I don't mean, are you going gluten-free? Is everything organic? Or are you, what, what, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about your spiritual diet. What are you taking in spiritually? What is your practice of pursuing godliness? Because this was the problem here among the Corinthians. They were allowing jealousy and strife to infiltrate their ranks. And what it meant is that they were behaving only in a human way. So so Paul is expecting more than natural humanity to come out of the church in Corinth. He was expecting more than humanity human ways of acting. Look at verse 4. For when one says I follow Paul and another I follow Apollos are you not being merely human? This is not okay to be merely human. He says you you have the spirit, right? Last week chapter 2, you've been given the spirit of God to dwell within you. You have now the ability to grow. But you put a block in the way by involving yourself in jealousy and strife and the jealousy and strife as we've already seen back in chapter 1 is from this factionalism going on in the church so you have different parties in the church saying well we're the Peter guys and we're the Paul guys and we're the Apollos guys and then the really self-righteous guys we're like we're the Christ followers and so they've, they've divided themselves up into camps which is far from spiritual in fact it's just like Pastor Ron has described to us the patron system in Corinth, where you would attach yourself to a speaker or a leader or a wealthy person, an influential person, in order to kind of step up on the social ladder. And so the Corinthians had smuggled this idea into the church without thinking about how it was in direct contradiction to the way a spiritual person, a mature person should act. And so we need to examine our diet. What are we putting into our lives that allows us to be more than human, more than merely human. How are we to be, verse 1, spiritual people? Well, we know from the scriptures all over the place that our diet needs to consist of God's Word. Our diet must consist of God's Word. And, and just as in real life, our, our diet can be diverse, But it needs to be consistent, right? And just think about what happens to your body if you're a very inconsistent eater. Um, How you compensate, oh, wow, I haven't eaten in two meals, (laughs) right? Um, If you're not consistent with your meals, uh, you kind of just eat whatever, whenever. There's no forethought, it just happens. And a lot of us are like that in our spiritual lives, where, well... I've got a few minutes here. I guess I'll read the Bible because, wow, I can't remember the last time I did because I haven't set aside time for it. And and the, the problem is we can see our bodies, for the most part, uh, shriveling up. We can see, wow, I've been so tired. Oh, I haven't been eating regularly. We can see the effects in the mirror even uh, of our lack of consistency in diet. But oftentimes in our spiritual lives we can't see it. And sometimes we don't even know that we're shriveled up. We don't know that we're puny pipsqueaks when we have the Holy Spirit of God in us to empower us to live spirit-led spirit-filled lives so my exhortation to all of us is to inspect our diet this morning what's your diet what are you what are you putting in to your mind what are you putting in to your heart what are you allowing to go into your ears and your eyes do you think about that is there any kind of regulation there Uh, Parents, What are you doing in the case of your children's spiritual diet? Uh, Siblings, are you just merely existing in the same house with each other? Or do you have a role to play in each other's lives? Roommates, um, whatever the case may be in all the different living situations we have. We need to help each other with our spiritual diets. And in doing this, we need to pursue... What we, what we get out of the scriptures. So if we read the scriptures, we read the Bible, and we take it to heart, and we work on putting it into practice, imperfectly, of course, what we will see is that there's no place for factions and parties in Christ's church. There's no place for that. It doesn't make any sense. But one commentator said, the real measure of spiritual maturity is unity and peace in the community. Not a boasting of which... Person, which teacher, which elder, which deacon, which deaconess, which Sunday school teacher, which Awana leader you identify with. That is that is actually a mark of immaturity. So Paul says, hey Corinthians, you need to grow up. It's time to move on. It's time to progress. And so Paul then in the next chunk, the next few verses 5 through 9, begins to use the picture of of a field. He uses a farming or agricultural metaphor to help us continue to look at the problems in the church here. And so point number two is look up. Or six, or whatever that point is in your notes. Point number two is look up. So point number one was grow up. Point number two is look up. Mature Christians understand that man's work is always dependent on God's work. Mature Christians understand that man's work is always dependent on God's work. And the metaphor used here is agriculture, which is distant from most of us. Um, we are not uh, intimately uh, in, in contact with the ground, with the earth, as much as many of our forebears were. How many of you have a garden? Or, or something like it? <laughs> okay, a few more hands went up, all right. Yeah, some of you are, are rabid, rabid gardeners. I don't think that works. You're gardeners. <laughs> You really take care of your garden. You are watching over it. You're tending it. Others, it's more of a little hobby that kind of happens on the side. But the Corinthians would have been very familiar with this agricultural metaphor. Go ahead and look at verse 5. Paul continues to move along the factions argument. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? And it's interesting is he he doesn't say who. He says what. And he, he had the ability in his language to say who. But he says what, almost as if they're just like instruments. What is what is Paul? What is Apollos? He's kind of almost just kind of putting himself and Apollos down a notch, and you'll see why. What are they? Servants, through whom you believe, as the Lord assigned to each. And that sounds that sounds right to us. Yes, servants. We know what Jesus has to say about servant leadership. We know that He came not to be served but to serve, and we know those things. But the Corinthians would have. Ah, They would have not liked that. Because what they were doing is elevating their teachers, elevating their leaders to, on top of these pillars, to look at and to surround and say, I'm of him. I belong to him. And Paul says, well, actually, that's kind of strange because we're just servants. So, like, why would you, like, yes! I'm going to identify with this servant. Right? So, um, you wouldn't, like, really come home from a trip to Washington, D.C. and say, hey, I met this guy that was a temporary worker one time for a dinner in the White House. It was awesome. Who cares? Now, if you said, I went went to Washington, D.C., and President Obama was walking around, I got to shake his hand, that would be a whole different thing, right? No one cares that you talk to this guy that worked one time in the White House kitchen, but if you talk to the President of the United States, that's a big deal. So Paul's just saying, this is just We're just the guys that kind of work in the kitchen, right? We're just doing what? Look at the end of the verse. As the Lord assigned to each. We're just doing our chores. And you're bragging about being aligned with chore workers. That's silly. That's not very wise, as he'll talk about later. And then he begins to take the metaphor further. I planted, verse 6, Apollos watered. But God gave the growth. God gave the growth. So, Paul says, we did things. I I planted. Apollos came back and he watered later. But as you and I both know, the limited exposure we might have to gardening, you didn't make it grow, right? I mean, you could water that plant and one plant right next to the other one and one of them just does not grow and dies and the other one's a beast with all kinds of fruit coming out of it. What was the difference? I don't know. (laughs) It happened, right? Jesus tells a parable of the farmer who goes out and sows the seed and works in the field, and at night he goes to bed. And when he's sleeping, the plant starts growing. He's not doing anything. <laughs> there, not, there must be um, something else or someone else doing, giving the growth. And so Paul wants to say loud and clear, I didn't bring about any growth. In fact, Paul uses... Um, the, the aorist tense here to say, one time I planted and one time Apollos watered. But then he changes the tense with God and says, but God gave the growth or God is giving. God is can, continuing to give the growth. So the picture is that we, we did a job and then we're done. And then God gave the growth. So God's exclusive domain here is to give the growth. Growth is God's exclusive domain there in your notes. Growth is God's exclusive domain. He even takes this further in verse 7. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. Uh, You could rephrase that. Say um, the planter and the waterer are nothing. They're nobodies in comparison to God who gives the growth. Say he who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. So God will God will give, you know, God will give the allowance to the boys that did their chores. But he'll go about making things happen. He'll go about making things grow. All of this to point out to the Corinthians, you're really silly for aligning yourself with these different guys. You're just, you're just missing the whole point here. God's the one who brings the growth Stop aligning yourself with Apollos, or Paul, or Cephas, or whatever the parties may have been. In verse 9 he says, For we, meaning probably he and Apollos, are God's fellow workers. Um, Probably not necessarily meaning they're on the same level as God, but together they are God's fellow workers. They're working for the same purpose. Apollos did not come in after Paul had left Corinth and come in thinking, I'm going to upset all of what Paul did and start my own thing. Apollos came and just continued to teach the word. And what happened was, he did it in a different style, probably, or a different way than Paul did. And so some of the people said, I like this guy better than Paul. This guy's a better speaker. I'm, I'm going I'm, I'm to switch allegiances. I'm going to be on his team. And the divisions in the church began to expand. At the end of uh, verse 9, after we were fe- God's fellow workers, he then... Ca- Paul then changes the metaphor. You are God's field. Okay, Church of Corinth, you're the field. Here's Paul and Apollos going through and watering and planting seeds in the field, God bringing the growth. And then he changes it. God's building. God's building. So, point number three in your notes is build up. So, we had grow up, we had look up, and now we have build up. Leaders in God's church must build rightly and carefully. Leaders in God's church must build rightly and carefully. And this section is primarily written to leaders in the church, although it does have general application for everybody in the church because most people in this church lead in some form or fashion. Um, There are various ways that we lead, but specifically here, Paul is going to talk to those who are involved in really building on the foundation that Paul laid. So in verse 10, Paul, not to... So that they don't miss the point. It says, according to the grace of God given to me. He leads with grace. He's about to say what he did, and he leads with grace. Paul always does this. Paul continually goes back to grace. Paul knew that he didn't deserve this. He was a persecutor of Christians. Why in the world would anybody think he ought to switch sides and begin to teach the ones that he had persecuted? So he was constantly aware of God's grace in his life. So according to that grace... Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And it's interesting that in the ESV that says skilled, but some of our versions say the word, it's wise. So Paul's been going after wise, foolish, wise, foolish, wise, foolish, all the way up until this part of the book. And what he says is, I was a wise architectone. That's the word in Greek, architect. Um, It it means kind of like the on-site supervisor. Um, I was the on-site supervisor, Paul said, and I laid a foundation. But then he took off and, verse 10, someone else is building upon it. So, so Paul has now totally shifted from the field and he's now talking about the building and he laid the foundation. He poured it. He made sure that it was straight and level. He made sure that it was ready to be built upon. But he did not do any of the building. He laid it and now others are doing the work. Okay. What's important is that he now tells the leaders, let each one take care how he builds upon it. So there's, there's a, a warning to the leaders of the Church of Corinth, be cautious how you build on this foundation. Uh, I, I've been on uh, several mission trips, uh, led a few from village to go down to Mexico and, and build houses. They're more like shelters um, for, uh, uh, for families down in Tijuana. Um, and you basically put it up in a day. Um, and they did not, this, this ministry did not used to require even a foundation. So I remember being in high school, building some of these shelter homes on just a flat piece of dirt. Now they require a, a foundation to be poured. But I just remember building on those things and saying, is this thing going to stand up? Like, we're building this for a family. They're going to live on this. Is this thing going to stand? So there was this, this sense of, we got to do the best job we can to make sure we put the nails in the right place. We listen to those who know what they're doing. I, I just hammer nail. What do I do? We, we've got to do the best job we can because we're going to go home and these people are going to live here. So Paul says in the same way, be very careful how you build on the foundation that I laid. Not because he's prideful and he wants, to, he wants everyone to look, wow, what a great foundation to sustain that building. No, he, he laid a foundation for the good of the Corinthians and he doesn't want the leaders there to, to mess it up. To lead people astray. In verse 11, he tells us what the basis of that foundation is. And it's Jesus Christ. Paul's already talked about preaching Christ and Him crucified to the Corinthians. And here, the foundation is Jesus Christ. That's where it all starts. That's where they were saved because they believed the message about Jesus. And on that foundation is where the building begins. Verse 12. If anyone builds on the foundation, watch this with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw. Now, some commentators centuries ago tried to really break this down and say, well, the wood probably stands for this and the hay or the straw. What he's doing, Paul is giving us two categories. Did you, know, did you note those? He's giving us things that survive and things that won't. Okay? Um, perishable and imperishable. All right? He's saying. Switch that. Imperishable, imperishable. He's saying, look, if you build with gold, silver, or precious stones, that's good material. You're not doing shoddy work. You're getting good material on which to build on the foundation. However, some people were building with wood, hay, and straw. And that doesn't sound as sturdy to me. (laughs) And that's the point. What kind of materials are you using to build on this foundation? And that would be the warning to any leader in a Village Bible Church... The, the foundation has been laid. Um, the, the apostles, but through even the founders of this church 60 years ago, laid a foundation on Jesus Christ. It's in our Constitution. Um, they made it that way so that we could not easily get away from the foundation of Jesus Christ. And so every person who teaches the Bible here at Village Bible Church, we need to know what are we building with? What are we building on top of this foundation of jesus christ are you using gold silver precious stones or are you using wood hay and straw the picture is verse 13 each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done so let's be real careful to note that what is being tested by fire is not the person but the work Okay, because there's lots of confusion on this point in this chapter. Um, what's being tested by fire is actually the work that they have done, which is the materials, right? So I thought about taking my, my, my silver ring off and having a lighter up here. And, and Oh, look, see? And then taking some wood and straw. And then, but that would, be, that would probably not be a good idea to start a fire on the stage. Uh, crazier things have happened. So there is a, there is a, sure, there is a candle right there. I'm not going to do that because you understand the point of precious metals in comparison to things that we throw on the fire. So at the day, judgment day, when we stand before Christ, our work will be judged. It will be put through the fire. I think that's a metaphorical fire. I don't think it's real there because I think that it's testing our work. And so especially the leaders of the church need to realize there is, there is an imminent, there's a day coming when what you have done on God's foundation in God's church will be tested. And then watch where we go from here. Verse 14. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, right? Uh, wood, hay, straw. He will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now this is the verse that the Roman Catholic Church gets its foot in the door about the doctrine of purgatory. Okay? This is really the only biblical passage that they can marshal to talk about the doctrine of purgatory um, because it talks about suffering loss but being saved only as through fire. Um, really, uh, two commentators, Robertson and Plummer, comment that there is not the remotest reference to the state of the soul between death and judgment in this place. This is not talking about the time between states when I die where am I going to go the Roman Catholic Church believes that many or most will go to purgatory to continue to purge purge, um, the the remaining sins this verse is not talking about that this verse is talking about the work that we have done on the foundation of Jesus Christ and notice that whether or not your your work survives or makes it through the fire both, both of these people are saved so we're talking about Christians here. We're talking about Christian leaders who are building on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And that phrase, um, only as through fire, there at the end of verse 15, is kind of like saying by the skin of your teeth. Right? You, you barely made it. Okay, So the picture is, this is a Christian, this is a person who's following the Lord, but they did not build with the right Proper lasting materials, and that will show in the end. In fact, they will suffer loss. And this is tied to the verse 14. The last word there is rewards. Are there rewards in heaven? Are there rewards in the afterlife? How does that work with salvation? If you want to write down some passages to go study afterwards, Matthew 16, 27. Matthew 16, 27. You could flip over a book to 2 Corinthians 5.10. Ephesians 6.8. And Revelation 22.12. I'll repeat those one more time. Matthew 16.27. 2 Corinthians 5.10. Ephesians 6.8. And Revelation 22.12. Um, I, I tend to believe that there are, somehow, the Lord is going to give varying rewards for the work that we've done for Jesus, um, all by grace. Uh, but somehow, I think, it's, I think there's too many uh, references in the scripture to say that this doesn't exist. That somehow, there will be rewards and degrees and levels of rewards in the new heavens and the new earth. How all that works, I, I'm not sure. I don't exactly know. There's a parable in Matthew that seems to indicate that there will be more or less a responsibility in the new heavens or the new earth. But we're just not necessarily exactly sure how that's all going to look. So we talk about this building, building with the proper materials on the foundation that is Jesus Christ. And then Paul kind of ups the ante here. He's been talking about a building. First he talked about a field, now he's talking about a building. And then he he turns the building, in his metaphor, into a temple. Verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? It's really, really important for us here to understand what's going on. Because English really leaves us at a loss. Well, English that doesn't exist in the South, okay? So that you, if you're looking, if you have an ESV, verse 16, look at you. Do you not know that you, you should have a number there, a little superscripted number, and that should point you to the bottom of the page. And at the bottom, the ESV helpfully says the Greek for you is plural in verses 16 and 17. So I was going to say, we should read it and say y'all, but I was actually corrected and it's actually all y'all, something like that, whatever. The point is, the point is that the you here is not talking about you, Phil Zergis, or you, Jonathan Martinez. It's talking about y'all, or all y'all, okay? This is, a, this is a plural word meant to convey the church, not individuals. Now, in chapter 6, we will see that Paul can and does use the term temple to refer to individual Christians. But in this context, he is talking about the church body, which makes sense because he's talking about divisions and factions in that church body, which, by the way, is really helpful when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Paul jumps in with the metaphor of the body um, for church life. These things are all all connected. But in this context, Paul says, all y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in all y'all. There's still plural there. So is it true that the Holy Spirit comes to reside in each individual Christian? Yes. Is it true that the Holy Spirit resides in a special and different way among God's people? Yes. This is what Paul wants them to know. Hey, you are breaking into divisions and factions. Well, hold on a second. All all y'all have the Holy Spirit dwelling among you. And that's the picture of temple, because if we look back at the Old Testament, certainly this is what Paul is referring to, is the temple was the dwelling place of the deity. Uh, whether that was uh, pagan temples, where they believed that the, the, the God they worshipped lived, or in the case of uh, Jewish monotheism, where Yahweh made his home. So when Solomon replaces the tabernacle with this huge temple that he takes, I think, seven years to build, When it's done and they dedicate the temple, God's presence in the symbol of a cloud comes down, fills the temple. I love this picture. And the priests are like jetting out of there. They're they're taking off because they can't stay in the temple. And the reason that that this happens is God is symbolizing, I will dwell among you in your midst. So the picture of the temple is not just I'll live inside of you. The the picture is I'm going to live with you or among you. And this is a huge thing to understand because that's crazy. That's crazy to think. Because in chapter 6, we're going to find out that these Corinthians, we've already saw in verse chapter 1 that they were, you know, kind of nobodies. In chapter 6, we find out that they were the worst of sinners in Corinth. And yet God would dwell among you? Unless we kind of elevate ourselves above the church at Corinth... Are we so arrogant as to think that yeah, God dwells among us? That's unbelievable. That's incredible news that the God of the universe would choose to come and dwell among local churches. What amazing truths we find here. Now, what's the point? Verse 17 shows us the point. <laughs> That's amazing. Verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Whoa. <laughs> Okay, well, that's clear. <laughs> okay? Um, the picture here is we're not trifling with people. We're not just messing around with, ah, I don't like that guy, he's annoying, whatever. We are dealing with God's temple, the place where God dwells. So if we're willing to put divisions and factions among God's temple, that's a dangerous place to be. Because God's temple was to be holy. Which is why in the book of Ezekiel we see the presence of God leaving the temple because they're worshiping pagan gods inside this place that was supposed to be the dwelling place of Yahweh. A warning to the people working at the church in Corinth. The building is a temple. Sorry, I missed those blanks. This building is a temple. This people is a temple. And beware because God cares deeply about this temple. Well, wow, we've got to fly through these last few verses. As we get to the last chunk, verses 18 to 23, the point number four in your notes is wise up. Wise up. God's foolishness defeats man's wisdom. And again, this is Paul circling around to a theme he's already touched on, circling around to points he's already made about the wisdom of the Greeks, their philosophy, um, and their pursuit of that. In contradistinction to uh, the, the the seeming foolishness of God and his ways. So Paul says to the church of Corinth, let no one deceive himself. Don't fool yourself. Don't allow that to happen. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. In essence, Paul is saying, Don't fool yourself, become a fool. Okay? So the, the sermon title is Grow Up to Be a Fool. Okay? Um, now, I am not saying go look at the Proverbs, find out everything they say about being a fool and emulate that. That is not what I'm saying. That's not what we've been saying in these last few chapters. What appears to be foolish to the world is actually wisdom with God. And what appears to be wisdom in the world is foolishness in the eyes of God. So Paul calls the Corinthian church, hey, don't pursue the wisdom of this age. And I think even in saying this age, assume it's temporary. Why would you pursue wisdom that's going to expire? Why would you pursue something that is not going to last? Rather, appear foolish to the world, but find something that will last. This is the same thing that Jesus does in his preaching of the kingdom. He turns everything upside down. The last will be first. Okay? Lose your life to save it. Okay? This is exactly what, to be great, you must become least. Least. Hey, become a servant of all if you want to become great. Turning everything on its head. Verse 19 says the same thing. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. And then two quotes from the Old Testament just kind of point out, hey, listen, um, God's got this whole thing under control, and he knows what's going on. Verse 19, he catches the wise in their craftiness. No one's going to outwise God. No one's scheming and going to like catch God by surprise. And that second quote from Psalm 94 The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. Okay? This is foolish to to engage in the wisdom of the world when it is futile or without result. It's fruitless. There's no place for it. And so the conclusion that Paul comes to, after all of this talk, after the the field, the building, the temple, after all these pictures, he comes all the way back around to the factions and divisions, and he says this. Verse 21. Verse 21. So let no one boast in men. And that's a command. That's an imperative. Stop boasting in men. And then he gives a very good reason why they should stop boasting in men. Get your eyes off of all this and look up. Look up. Why? For all things are yours. All things are yours. Which is basically Paul taking Seneca, who was... Uh, a Roman philosopher who lived at the same time as Paul, taking one of his phrases, all things are for the wise, and and tweaking it and using it for Christ, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. Stop squabbling about which guy you're going to follow and which team you're on, and look at, you've got all this. You've got all of this. In fact, what's really important is he kind of twists the whole thing around. In chapter 1, he's saying, you guys are going around saying, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter, I'm of Paul. I'm aligning myself with this exclusive network over here. Paul is saying, actually, we belong to you. Totally flips it on his head. All these people are saying, we belong to this faction or this group. And Paul says, no, we actually belong to you. God has given the leaders of the church to the people of God for their good. Not so that the people of God might divide up into little groups and cluster around their favorite teachers. And then he goes beyond Paul or Paul or Cephas, and he says, the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future reminds you of Romans 8. Okay, What, what in this can separate us from the love of God? He says, you are Christ's. You belong to Jesus. And Jesus belongs to God. So this is where we can smuggle in from Galatians the idea that we're co-heirs. That in some senses, Jesus is our brother and we get the inheritance that Jesus gets, which is everything. (laughs) What's Jesus going to inherit? The universe. (laughs) What do we get through Jesus? The universe. (laughs) That's what we inherit. So why would we just bring our gaze down and, and argue and fight? and break into divisions and factions over servants over conduits through whom God is working so, so here's the deal um, I have sinned in this regard in the past um, I'm a John MacArthur man, I'm a John Piper man I'm a whatever, we start to, all our favorite teachers or whatever, we begin to to cluster around these men and we lose, the, we lose sight of what God is doing we lose sight of it like, bringing rain. Like, that's pretty cool. Right? You're all, you're all distracted anyway. <laughs> so, which means it's time to conclude. <laughs> so, as we conclude, well, what do we need to do? Well, we need to, we need to look in the mirror of the Scripture and say, am I, am I causing divisions and factions in Village Bible Church? Am I causing divisions and factions in this way uh, we, could, we, could, we could expand that but um, basically we need to ask are we behaving in merely human ways or merely Orange County ways are we just like everyone else around us do we use the wisdom of the world or are we different um, remember your ministry your ministry is God's ministry um, it's, it's, not like, it's not like if I have a heart attack this afternoon that God's like oh no what's going to happen a village He's not surprised. He can plug people in to do whatever needs to be done. The church did not die out after the 12 apostles were gone. Because the ministry was passed on because it's God's church, not ours. Using the the metaphor of the building, how are you contributing to the structural integrity of Village Bible Church? And I don't mean these things. How are you contributing to the structural integrity of Village Bible Church? And lastly, I think that, that this is such a serious topic. Paul says, God's going to destroy you if you mess with God's temple. And so we're not playing games here. This is, this is not just kind of come on Sunday and kind of do my thing, say hi to people, teach a story. We're not playing games. This is life or death. God sees this as a serious thing. So we need to grow up We need to grow into all that God has for us. Last, I just want to read from a hymn um, that actually has, I think, uh, 10 verses. Okay, well, I'm going to read several of the verses of a hymn called The Church's One Foundation. Listen to the words. The Church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is His new creation by water and the Word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Is the church important? It's important enough that Jesus died. Though with a scornful wonder men see her sore oppressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed. There's our divisions, factions. Yet saints their watch are keeping, their cry goes up how long, and soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore. Till with the vision glorious, her longing eyes are blessed, and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. O happy ones and holy, Lord, give us grace that we, like them, the meek and lowly, on high may dwell with thee. There, past the border mountains, where in sweet veils the bride with thee by living fountains forever shall abide. And that's our future. So so our future is is together in the new heavens and the new earth with Christ as our King, ruling and reigning, us beside Him. So why waste time with divisions and factions here on earth when there is a harvest to be had? Pray the Lord of the harvest to send workers into those fields. Let's pray. Lord, we don't want to... We don't want to get in the way of what you're doing. We don't want to unnecessarily put up barricades to growth. And so, God, I pray that this morning you'd cleanse us of whatever's in the way. Bitterness or jealousy, arguments. Lord, I pray you take those things away. That we would see the ministries represented here at Village Bible Church as as um, vehicles to accomplish the mission that you've given to us. So, Lord, like soldiers on a mission, help us to put away the things that will just entangle us, that will keep us wrapped up in petty things. And, Lord, help us to look ahead, to work hard, to build on the foundation laid on Jesus Christ with materials that will last. God, we want to stand in front of that fire. We want to stand in front of your throne. And we want to see, yes, We did the work the right way, and God gets all the glory. So Lord, as we, even now as we go to hear from teachers and to sit under those teachers, Lord, help us to see them as servants of Christ and help us to learn alongside of our brothers and sisters. Go with us today, Lord. Thank you for the rain. In Jesus' name, amen.